I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Amy Turner, J.D., and author, and her new book is On the Ledge, a memoir. In five years ago, after her father climbed out on a hotel ledge and threatened to jump, an event that made national news Amy steps into a crosswalk and is mowed down by a pickup truck. The accident, which nearly kills her, propels her on a remarkable emotional journey that starts with the unraveling of her own brush with death and then unexpectedly goes on to heal the childhood trauma buried far deeper. Amy was born in Bronxville, New York, and is a graduate of Boston University and New York Law School. After practicing law and she says rather unhappily for 22 years, she finally found the courage to change careers at 48 and become a very happy seventh grade social studies teacher. She's a longtime mediator, an avid reader who likes to swim and bike and lives in East Hampton, New York with her husband, Ed, uh, to whom she's been married uh, for 40 years. They have two sons and On the Ledge is Amy's first book. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on. Oh, thank you so much, Catherine. It's nice to be here. Well, as I said in the introduction, getting hit by a truck, it seems to me, <laughs> would be the end uh, for most of us. And for you, it was the beginning. So let's start there. Uh, okay. Okay. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. I, I, absolutely. I, I was very for, you know, fortunate. It certainly wasn't the end of my life, and I recovered from my injuries. But uh, needless to say, it was an extremely shocking random event. I was crossing the street in a crosswalk and a pickup truck was taking a left-hand turn into uh, toward the crosswalk and I was staring into the windshield, which was shaded. So I thought the driver could see me. You know, I couldn't see his face because of the shading, but I was certain he saw me and then he accelerated and hit me, you know, straight on and, uh, dragged me for a little while and um, you know I survived it and it was the beginning really of an emotional journey that I absolutely didn't expect that that certainly didn't expect the accident and I didn't expect it to lead to this emotional journey that I thought um, I thought I'd uh, you know resolved all these issues from my childhood but this propelled me on that journey on a much deeper level. Yeah. And it's interesting when you, uh, as I'm reading the book and in the beginning, I mean, anyone who gets hit by a truck, you, you still had a sense of humor, uh, which I found interesting. <laughs> I, yes. Uh, I, mean, I, uh, the, um, I, the, you know, humor has always been a defense mechanism. And I think maybe some of your listeners who might've grown up with some kind of dysfunctional family may have resorted to that, um, as a coping mechanism, I certainly did, and honestly, I did not know how deeply ingrained that coping mechanism was, but I was literally lying under the truck. I'd been carrying my dry cleaning, having left the dry cleaners. It it was on top of my head, and the plastic was in my mouth, and I just I had this realization. I thought, oh, my God. I'm gonna. I just got hit by a truck, but I'm gonna die suffocating on my dry cleaning, and yeah. <laughs> it, it made me, you know, laugh in my laugh to myself. Um, 
and of course I survived and seconds later somebody I and not only did you survive and they take you to the hospital and they take you to I mean they take you to the hospital and which I was really surprised at and then they let you out a few hours later I mean this is after getting hit by a truck and then you go home hello um <laughs> yes um I I was shocked they uh I went by helicopter because all head traumas I'm on the eastern end of Long Island and head traumas have to go to a more advanced hospital so um I expected to be there for a night or two. I mean, I'd gotten hit by a truck, but I could take a few steps, and they sent me home. It was probably a busy night. And um, I was home uh, 12 hours after the accident, so that that was disorienting even in itself. So, okay, so what happened? Now, we've sort of introduced, we have introduced the events. But then what really happened was, you say, digging really deep into this emotional trauma. How did that come about? I mean, obviously, did it happen right away? Did it happen slowly? It evolved, um, you know, in terms of yeah, when as you were recuperating or as you thought you were recuperating? Well, I would say it was um, slow because... You know, we were just talking about that coping mechanism of humor, and um, it actually became a problem with me. I mean, I was holding on to it. So initially, you know, I went to see my therapist. My uh, doctor internist said, you know, you really should go back, talk to your therapist to forestall the possibility of developing PTSD symptoms. And uh, so I went to talk to her, but I could not talk about the accident. I was always, you know, doing the laugh line about the dry cleaning. I was brushing it off. I didn't want to admit I had any weakness or vulnerability. I simply, I could not go there. And um, I was having shoulder spasms and all kinds of issues and just uh, by chance ended up in the office of an acupuncturist, masseuse. It turned out that we had all these uncanny connections. It was just shocking. It turned out we were from the same hometown. We had the same teacher. We, all kinds of things. Um, and I began to think that something was going on here. And through, I think, the physical techniques of, the ac- of acupuncture and the Chinese medicine and the fact that she was studying somatic experiencing, and using those techniques with me, gradually my nervous system started to settle, or at least we could get to the uh, physical sensations of trauma trapped in my nervous system. And that was gradual, um, and it didn't involve therapy, which is I'm used to talking about issues, but this was really physical. And... Eventually, I started to feel some kind of space and distance, and it was actually kind of sudden, but I I, um, found myself really thinking about my father's, I guess we could call it, you know, attempted suicide when he climbed out on the ledge, which happened when I was four and a half, and I decided to research it, and it was very strange. It came to me just like another item on the grocery list, you know, no fanfare, 
but I couldn't shake the feeling, and I started researching that, and that led me to, you know, even that, that deeper layer of trauma. So it was like going from the vulnerability of facing the truck to the vulnerability, which I think was even greater that I felt as a four-and-a-half-year-old when suddenly he disappeared for a year, and that was kept secret from me till I was 16. But that was Your mother the, kept it um, secret. Your mother uh, was someone who kept it secret from you, didn't want to talk about it, didn't want you to upset your father, and um, was always trying to... I, I don't know, she was, it seems, as I was reading the book, it's not like, she was always not trying to make nice, but she wanted to sort of smooth things over. And so you, yeah. Yes, yes, she did. I think, um, you know, as a parent, you know, now, and what we sort of know now, I, I think keeping secrets from children is, is generally harmful, of course, with young children. Sharing information has to be on, you know, the developmentally appropriate level but she she kept this secret because I think it she felt it was key to her to keeping control in the household and that aspect of control was so important to her because she was an active alcoholic when this when my father climbed out on the ledge and she uh, with within a month of his hospitalization she stopped drinking so she needed to keep control kind of over the household, try to keep it stable so that um, she wouldn't be triggered to drink. And uh, and also when my father returned home, she wanted to keep it sort of very emotionally calm so that he wouldn't somehow get upset, get depressed again, get, you know, become suicidal again. So for her, you know, the expression of emotion or difficult feelings, those were all, you know, threatening threatening to this control, which really was motivated by protecting us, protecting her, protecting my father, but it had, you know, um, certainly um, consequences, you know, emotionally for the rest of us. And um, I found out from... A psychologist who I went to when I was 16 uh, and he was concerned because I was always talking about how worried I was about my father because children know they don't know the exact you know, facts but they know they sense something's wrong they can sense the anxiety and the worst and in my case I felt I was responsible for it or responsible for somehow um, keeping my father from getting upset and unwittingly doing something that might upset him or upset my mother. So, um, uh, I just want to, the, I want your, your mother and father, your father was depressed, obviously, and your mother is an alcoholic. I, I want to put it in a context though. You grew up in a upper middle-class family, very well educated. Your dad, um, went to Yale. Um, yes. So that, and you were protected in other ways, let's say, also. Oh, absolutely. Growing, yeah. I mean, no, no, no doubt that I grew up in a, you know, privileged um, uh, household, you know, in terms of finances. And I had 
you know, any resource I needed in education. So there's no, um, there's certainly no issues there. And I'm certainly grateful that um, in those ways, my childhood, you know, was extremely stable and I didn't have any of the heartbreaking issues that people in other situations had. It was really, you know, an emotional instability. Well, I think that, I think I like to point that out because I think sometimes, you know, we talk about those who have privilege and those who don't in vulnerable populations, which is important. But also I think that your memoir particularly points out that you can be extremely vulnerable and, 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 and live in a privileged um, come up, be raised in a privileged family, but yet the pain that, that your whole family suffered from, um, your, your brother also went to Harvard, but was an addict. So, uh, right. in complex family dynamics. Yeah. Go ahead. Yes. There are some, um, you know, those, those privileges in my brother's case, you know, such a brilliant, charming, wonderful, uh, man, you know, boy and man, but highly sensitive. And I think he had the genetic disposition for alcoholism. And, um, you know, he suffered most of his life and no amount of, um, you know, privilege or anything else was going to help him um, deal with his alcoholism. He needed to do that himself. And it wasn't really until the end that he was able to. And then what I discussed in my memoir, equally shocking to me as much as the accident was that he'd been sober for three years and then dies unexpectedly. So mm-hmm. that was um, uh, a shocking event for me too. Amy, what a, you know, you were four and a half when your father attempted suicide. Um, how do you, what could your mother have done differently? How should, how could she have, change the whole dynamic if she hadn't behaved the way she did? Well, you know, I, I, um, I, at different stages of my life, you know, as a teenager and maybe in my twenties and early thirties, I probably judged her. I had some anger, but, uh, as I've gotten older and had children myself and thinking about the time period, I just, you know, she did she did the best she could given her own capacity. She had early childhood losses. Her mother died when she was 2 and then her beloved older brother died 3 years later. Um so she was struggling with you know, fear of vulnerability and anxiety herself and she was an alcoholic. So really the fact that she was able to get sober and keep the family intact. Um, I have great admiration and respect for us, really took a lot of courage and strength. Maybe if she hadn't had those early childhood traumas or hadn't had her own alcoholism to deal with, you know, perhaps she might have been able to be more open to allow more, you know, expression of emotion and um, allowed us to talk about what was going on and maybe share some of the information, you know, I don't think you're not going to be telling a, you know, a four-year-old or five-year-old that your father's, you know, in a mental hospital from having climbed out on a ledge, but there are ways to, you know, daddy's getting help, he'll be back and love that. I just knew he disappeared. I thought he, 
I thought he was learning to become a doctor because I kept hearing hospital and so <laughs> forth. So um, children just make things up. And, and um, so in any event, uh, to comfort themselves. So I think had she been more open and allowed us to express our emotions and discuss what was happening in the house, that, that would have really helped everybody. And I, I'm thinking, and you mentioned the time, the particular era, the time that this happened, and it was in the 50s. So she herself, uh, you know, in the 50s, one, as, as a parent, you didn't have that much support from the outside. I mean, we didn't, first of all, talk about psychiatric problems. And so mm -hmm. she herself would be isolated. And even as a child, I know, you know, you're talking about four and a half, you, you know, there's certain things you're going to say to a four and a half year old, but there are many things you wouldn't say regarding suicide. But now there are there are books. There are so many opportunities to get support from the community. From uh, so it, it's a very different time, you know, yes. than it was then. Yeah, to and even but, even then, I think as a as an alcohol, you know, alcoholism wasn't something people were talking about very much. AA was fairly new, and women alcohol, you know, women drinking was there was even more taboo. I, I mean, as we got older, uh, I think there was an opportunity to kind of talk to us about it. But at 16, when they thought, I guess, uh, I probably was seeming somewhat depressed and overly anxious, and they sent me to the psychologist. And when he finally called my mother and said, you know, why is Amy so worried about her father? What happened? Um, and my mother told him, and... He asked if he could share it, and he told me the story. As he was telling me that story, it was like everything came into focus. It was um, it was like some you know a photograph had been overexposed, and then it just somehow comes into total focus. And I thought, oh my gosh, this, this whole time, um, this is what's really been going on. So I was glad to have learned about it at sixteen, but as a sixteen-year-old, I was also pretty angry. So what would you say, what can we learn, uh, what can readers learn from, from, from your book, from your memoir? Uh, you know, I mentioned in the beginning, you know, this, this remarkable emotional journey that you've been on. Um, what, can, what would be our takeaway? Uh, well, thank you for that. I, I would hope that um, people would come away from it just knowing that it's, it's never too late to really come to terms with some with your identity or emotional issues or something that maybe you've been struggling with. I, I certainly, I'd had so many years of therapy and I'd done, I felt a lot of work, um, but there was always something I felt constrained in, inside. And through this journey, I feel like, um, I got to something on a deeper level that I never imagined I would have. And so I would hope people would just um, have hope and feel motivated and feel re reassured that they don't, they should never give up on themselves and um, that uh, we can resolve our issues eventually. We just keep at it and, in every way that um, feels comfortable. Well, I think one of the things in the book uh, uh, on your journey is that uh, you 
you practiced law for 20 plus years. Mm. You didn't like it. You changed after all of those years and became a school teacher. So that kind of inflexibility that you had in the beginning, you opened up and were able to make those kinds of changes. Yes, you didn't change husbands, um, which most people do <laughs> if you stayed together for which is we 40 did. years. I, I was yeah. very fortunate in my, with Ed, I, I must say, and so grateful for that. Uh, yes, you're, you're really, um, I'm glad you brought that up because I was beginning to, to get closer or get access to really truly who I am, I think, when I finally made that switch from law to teaching because I went, I became a lawyer because in my mind it meant that I, I could handle the business world unlike my father. I needed to distinguish myself from him. And, but it really wasn't the right profession for me. And so finally, I think, uh, accepted who I was or what my skills were and what my, my separate interests were. No longer had to distinguish myself from my father and found, you know, the courage to switch to teaching. But I was still connected to him in a way that, um, was constraining me in other ways. And this, truck accident somehow uh, led me to finally deal with that vulnerability that goes back to my early childhood. So I was getting there, and and this kind of brought me um, the next leg in the journey. Yeah. Instead of being hit over the head, you were struck by a truck. <laughs> well, I did... I said this in the memoir. I did even later have to laugh. I had just been reading that book, Change Your Brain, uh, you know, Change Your Mind, Change Your Brain. And I was thinking, my God, you know, I just crashed my head on the pavement. (laughs) But I don't recommend that to people. (laughs) I bet you're one of the few who really have survived that. I mean, I I, I I keep going back to that, but boy, I mean, it's really unimaginable. I was were... so. I mean, I was for, so fortunate. I mean, the tire. I had tire marks from where the tire was next to my foot. I just. I don't even uh, understand it. I think the doctor suggested that perhaps I had relaxed on in some level right before the truck hit me, and maybe that was it. And I attribute that to years of meditation. But I really don't know. I think I was just plain lucky. TM comes okay. in quite a bit. Let's talk about TM because yeah, that's uh, now it's becoming very popular, much more popular yeah. than it was, let's say, uh, you know, thirty years ago, twenty years ago, even. But um, you've been involved yes, in that, I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, back in 1975, it, it wouldn't announce to the world that I was meditating. You know, they think you were kind of out of your mind or something. Um, but uh, my brother was at Harvard, and he saw these students who seemed really happy and clear, and he asked them what they were doing, and they said they were had just started TM. So he started, I, I think in part because he thought, you know, it would help him with his own issues, and he started TM. He became a TM teacher. Then he wouldn't let my parents rest until they learned, and then when my mother stepped on a tennis court... <laughs> and realized her depth perception was better and her reflexes were faster. She never missed a meditation and really just forced, I mean, she just told the rest of us, her children, you have to learn to meditate. So I did. 
and that was August of 1975, and it's such an effortless, easy technique. Um, I've been doing it ever since, and it's just a wonderful way to release stress, and uh, very, very grateful for that, and grateful for my brother. It was a wonderful contribution to our family. It really does work, you know, mm-hmm. and I think more and yeah, more and more, even uh, mainstream um, the physicians uh, recommend it. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. There's so much research, you know, back th- then they, had, they were just starting the research and now it's just, you know, documented the effects, the, the um, health effects on blood pressure and anxiety and heart disease and whole array of physical symptoms because we all know, I mean, we all accept now that stress can lead to physical um, disease. So I'm very grateful that I do it. I hope it's keeping me healthy. Well, we only have a couple minutes left, so let's um, give us a website that we can go to because the book has not come out yet. Um, and uh, where we can get more information about the book. Um, I'm sure we can get it online, um, bookstores everywhere. Um, and are there other we- websites um, that we can go to about that uh, tell us about what you're doing, what your next chapter uh, is? <laughs> well, thank you. Um, yes, uh, people can go to uh, com, and there they can, you know, find, read more about my book, and there's also a link to where it can be pre-ordered, and that's Amazon or Bookshop.org or Barnes and Noble, and the book will be available on September 6th. Uh, my website also has um, some resources if anybody's interested in learning more about something like somatic experiencing. I, I list some resources. There are some books, and um, you know, more background about my family and some photographs and so forth. And right now I'm uh, preparing for the, you know, release of the book, but I hope once that's done I can maybe start writing another project. But I think I might take a bit of a breather before yeah. I Good relax. do that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think so. I might. Well, it's... It's been great having you on the show today. Thanks so much. Um, I really appreciate it for sharing. And uh, the title of the book is On the Ledge, a memoir. Um, We're all looking forward to seeing it. Oh, I was going to ask you, because is it going to be on Audible as well? Uh, I hope to. uh, I I hope it will be. And and I will certainly post information about that on my website. Well, you can listen to the show. It's going to be airing on, well, when I when they hear this, it will have aired. So it's on the 20th Wonderful. of July. Yeah, right. Great. And it'll be on Voice America and the thecatherinezockshow.com. Thank you. Thank you thanks, so much. Amy. I really yeah. enjoyed this conversation. And thanks so much for the opportunity thanks. to talk about my book. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. <laughs> <laughs> 